0: Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm talking with Dr. Robert Plummer from um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He and Benjamin Merkel have written a wonderful new uh, grammar uh, and textbook on Koine, that is New Testament Greek. The book is Beginning with New Testament Greek. Here it is, Beginning with New Testament Greek an introductory study of the grammar and syntax of the New Testament. Dr. Plummer, thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's a privilege to be here, Jerry, and, and feel free just to call me Rob. Okay, Rob it is. Um, Rob, this is, this is a wonderful resource. Uh, it's really terrific. Um, and it caused me to sort of dream a dream, which is, mm. is it actually possible that it can become an ordinary part of the Christian life? or maybe that's a little much maybe to reach for maybe not or at least an ordinary part of the christian life of leaders and teachers to be conversant with the language in which the new testament is written namely koine greek is that is that nuts or is that really plausible well i've i've given much of my
1: life to that vision so <laughs> so yes i do think it is absolutely plausible and I, through the ministry I have, com. I hear from hundreds of people around the world. And I hear from construction workers, from medical doctors, from retired engineers. Hmm. And I tell you, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, ordinary, faithful Christians, sometimes alone, sometimes gathering with a small group, reading the Bible together in the original Hebrew and Greek. It's just a wonderful thing that's going on.
0: I love it. Did you expect that or did you think you were mainly going to be talking to pastors who would let their Greek drop?
1: Yes. When I started the Daily Dose of Greek, it was sort of my midlife crisis I did in my mid-40s, saying I, I don't. I, I want to provide a way of accountability for our seminary students to keep going in their Greek daily sort of reminders and helps but so I did not at that time when I started that really think about the many lay people, the many non, uh, non-vocational non ministers that uh, it would reach. But it has been a real joy. And they, and they often, you know, I hear, I just, my mind is exploding with those conversations as we're talking about. I mean, I just recently heard from a retired Japanese mathematics professor in Tokyo, and he's just loving spending his retirement now. Learning to read the Greek New Testament. He sent me
0: some corrections from my website. He's very meticulous. <laughs> I'm grateful
1: for that. I'm grateful for that.
0: Yes. If someone corrects me, they're doing me a, that's almost the greatest service they can do to me, uh, do for that's- me. Um, so, and also economists. You've got podcasting economists who are here's feedback from a podcasting economist who's saying, Thank you for so much for helping me get back some of my New Testament Greek. I Earlier on, I had done a little, um, and I did like a pre-seminary thing, and then I didn't really do seminary. Uh, I had a life change that moved me another direction. And then my wife and I were reading it devotionally. Like Sunday morning, we'd go to early chapel, then we'd hike up Observatory Hill in Pittsburgh and read John to one another in Greek. But that was two decades ago, and life crowded in. And I lost it. And I recently did a book that's about the New Testament. And so I was looking at Greek and I was like, what is this? This looks completely foreign. to I lost it, right? And you've, you've helped me get it back. Thank you for that. Well, yeah,
1: your story is like many others. So my, my guess is there are many people who will hear this who think, oh, my Greek is so far gone. It's so, there's no way I can ever get it back. But that is not true. You totally— totally can get it back, and there have never been more resources, uh, more avenues um, to help get it back in small, you know, small ways, and encouraging ways, and free ways, so I just uh, applaud you for taking those steps back towards the Greek New Testament. I realize also there are many people who will never, uh, maybe never have the chance to study Greek, or won't, won't, for various reasons. And we have great English translations. I'm grateful for our great English translations. But there if you're a believer, if you know the Lord Jesus, and you believe the Bible is the Word of God, there is this desire, I think all Christians have, to, to be as close to that as possible. And so hmm. they don't want a translation separate. They want to read the
0: actual words the apostles wrote. And, and I just want to help them do that. Hmm. I, I'm curious. I didn't prepare you for this kind of hot potato question, um, but are they just the words that the apostles wrote, or are they actually also the words that Jesus spoke? Because I, I notice when I'm reading the gospel accounts, there's no reference to a translator, and he's speaking to wide audiences. They might be Aramaic speakers and Koine. So I guess my baseline expectation is that frequently Jesus is himself speaking Koine Greek, not that— someone translated his Aramaic into Greek for us. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes, uh, let me let me comment on that. First I'll say, you know, as as a believing Christian, I do believe every word of that we have in the, you know, is the word of God. So, if whether it's a translation of Jesus' speech or whether he actually spoke those Greek syllables, I believe it has, you know, full authority, mm-hmm. uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reliable, trustworthy if it's a translation. It's a reliable and trustworthy translation. So um, it's somewhat speculative as to how much Jesus may have functioned in Greek. More archaeological discovery, literary analysis of Galilee shows that it was it was a bi or trilingual setting with people functioning in Aramaic, Hebrew, and uh, Greek. Mm-hmm a lot of inscriptions and other things like that. At the same time in the gospels, we do have um, you know, those rare instances, especially in Mark, where where the author steps aside and says, you know, here he said which means little girl, little girl get up. up right. So so you have those little those little actual you know, the author saying, Here are the actual syllables that came out of Jesus' mouth in Aramaic. Hmm. So I'm inclined to think that um he mostly um, ministered in Aramaic mm-hmm. among, you know, a Jewish audience, um, though there are some settings uh, where he possibly could have been speaking Koine Greek too. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not
0: not sure. It's a, a interesting thought on that. There are these instances, you know, um, where, uh, you know, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, and Talitha, kum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe those are, here's the actual syllables he spoke rather than the translation, or maybe... Um, these are times when he spoke Aramaic, so the reporter, the, the apostle in this case, is accurately recording that this, in this particular instance, like in the home with a little girl, or in a moment of agony on the cross, he, you know, true to the, to the moment, spoke Aramaic. Um, uh, so and anyways we, we don't know do we i mean we've, we've got interest well
1: we don't probably the majority opinion is that he primarily ministered in aramaic and even some of the the greek text um some people have had fun translating them back into aramaic mm-hmm. and they when they do that there are sometimes some interesting word plays that you might expect in the original aramaic for example when jesus says you you know you swallow a nad and strain out a camel mm. in aramaic the word for nad and camel sound almost alike so it's a hmm. it's a little you you can see a little bit more of the how the mnemonic method that jesus was using that was that would have been very engaging yes to the original spoken audience hmm. uh but but interesting you, point people write monographs debating Uh, how much Greek, how well Greek was known in first century Israel, and would Jesus have functioned in it in some of his teaching settings? So all that's to say that the the debate on that continues. It is interesting, though, in first century Jerusalem, they found, I think, well over a hundred ossuaries that have, so these are by faithful Jews who are believing in the resurrection. They're that the inscription on the side is not in Aramaic, but is in Greek. So you you see right. these Greek-speaking Jews. And in fact, you see this in Acts, the the Hellenistic widows and the Hebraic widows and mm-hmm. the argument about who's being left out and the distribution of the food. So these people coming and stuff. So it, I think the the first century setting, even in Israel, was much more linguistically diverse than we might
0: initially think. I think that's right. I think Koine was probably more— you know more diffused than we than previous scholars believed because we found so much and also more reconciled with faithful judaism in other words it's not the situation that faithful jews didn't feel like they could speak greek you know, because we find synagogues. You know, we find Greek at at you know conservative Pharisaical synagogues, and in Sepphoris we find a kind of a really interesting. There's Greek literacy, but it's you know it's a definitely a Jewish city. So it seems like they kind of they kind of reconciled themselves with the lingua franca of trade of the ancient uh, of the ancient Mediterranean region. Yeah, and if you
1: think, I mean. Jesus was a was a tectone. He was a builder, sometimes translated carpenter. But if you've ever been to Israel, probably the main building um, building resource he used was stone. Right. So more like a, we might say a general contractor today right. and, and the family business. And so uh, working in Galilee, like you said, with Sepphoris, where you have a Greco, many ways a Greco-Roman city there in Galilee, it's very likely that Jesus was growing up was engaging in business contracts and discussions with both Jews and Gentiles in Aramaic and Greek mm-hmm. and and also the you think about the fishermen James John Peter I mean they probably were were doing the same thing doing business in Greek and in Aramaic and if you go to Israel today uh, you'll have a little kid run up to you and they'll look at you and they'll try to sell you postcards in German and if hmm. you don't German, they'll try in English, and then they'll try maybe in Hebrew, and you realize that when you'll appreciate this as an economist, when there's an incentive to learn other languages economically, uh, then people speak other languages, you know?
0: Yes, and, and I'm not sure we used to know, earlier generations of scholars know how much trade was going on in Galilee of the Gentiles. So you've got, you know, the King's Road, and you've got all these roads that we found, because this is the link between the port cities and the ancient civilizations of, of Babylon and Persia, right? The Parthians, et cetera. So there's a lot of people going across there and wouldn't Galileans want to buy and sell from them? Um, and those people are not going to be speaking Hebrew. They're going, You know, so they'd be speaking the trade language. English is the trade language of the world now. So, Koine Greek was the trade language. I think. I mean, you're the Koine Greek, but Koine Greek was the trade language predominantly. Correct?
1: You're exactly right. Hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. The Koine Greek was the lingua franca, the trade language, the business language. Um, just like English is today, it's a similar compare. You know, it's a good comparison, and that is it does explain why you know sometimes people lament that Americans don't know other languages. And I, I love other languages, so I you know I. But the reason they don't is they don't have an incentive to learn. Other They can be lazy because other people speak
0: their language already. Yeah, we don't need it. We're 5% of population and we're 25% of GDP. They, they, up until now, we've been able to say, no, you learn ours. Um, now, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we're all going to have to learn Mandarin, uh, given certain fiscal realities. Uh, but at least for now, you can get by in global business on English. This is true. The questions that I told you I'd ask you, <laughs> rather than the questions that popped into my mind. Yeah, um, so it's not nuts to think that ordinary Christians, as opposed to pastors, ordinary Christians can learn it because you're seeing that you think you got two million views last year, right, on on your web? Yeah, on, we had
1: well through our various daily dose videos, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and so on. We had a total of two point three million video views, and that was. In, in well over 100 countries. Mm. So we're getting um, people learning Greek in Papua New Guinea or, um, and even the Vatican, you know. So uh, it's, it's never it's, too it's, late yeah, <laughs> to move right. from it's, Latin
0: to Greek. And
1: it's, it's delightful <laughs> to see, and it's totally doable. And it, the, the real issue is just time. And if people time. would look at the time. screen, yes, yeah, sc- screen time on their phone, And they maybe say, how much time am I spending reading sports updates? How much time am I spending looking at the news? How much time am I spending on Instagram? What if you just took 10% of that time or 25% and you devoted it? Say, I'm just going to take a little time every day to start learning Greek or Hebrew. It's so doable. And you you, you know we have free apps, Daily Dose of Greek app, Daily Dose of Hebrew app. Also available website, Facebook, and other ways, so people have no excuse, and there are many other good ministries that are providing uh language coaching and help too
0: and you're you're going through daily dose of Greek right now, you're going through John's gospel, and um I think today was John six uh, I don't remember the exact verse, but um one of Jesus' discourses about the spirit, and it was like very helpful, you're taking us through, and then it's like, oh wait a minute, you may notice. Uh, that here we have spirit, um, we, we have we have a um, neuter, um, plural. Yeah. Um, and words, yeah, the words. The words, uh-huh. so, remita, I'm sorry, yeah. not, not yeah, Numa, fine. Fine. The, the, the words, but it's estin. So a me, yeah. a estin, yeah. as men estin, yeah, yeah. a zin. The, shouldn't that be a zin? And it's like, yeah, it should be. And you're like, and you say, I guess I'm speaking in historical um, yes. present yes, right now. True. You're like, you say, um well, you the uh Yeah, the, you have the, a new, the neuter, neuter plural, plural goes with a singular um verb. So you're you're like taking us through the Greek text and then reminding us of the rules that we learn and then forget in the textbook.
1: Very That's helpful. Correct. Yeah. Bite size dosage. So two to three minutes a day max and people can do that. Yeah. People get and, the, and you and you're finding you've hopefully found that it's amazing how two to three minutes a day over a month, two months, three months, it really begins to add up and
0: people are surprised at how much they can remember or how much they're reminded of. So let's, let's talk about what works on a daily basis that is affordable in terms of people's time budget um, and also of adequate scale to really get us to learning the language. So what would that look like on a daily basis? Let's include the textbook in it. Uh, So you got textbook, and then you've got resources. What could what could just an ordinary Christian do? Yes, if someone came to me and they said,
1: "I'm just I just want to start from scratch and learn to read the Greek New Testament," the first thing I would recommend to them is to to get the book I co-authored with Ben Merkel called Greek for Life, and that's published by Baker. But it's it's basically like a personal coach, and it's saying, "Hey, this is what this is how you learn. This here's mnemonic methods." here's how you structure your time here's so it's it's more like a personal trainer who's mm-hmm. coming in and saying if you're going to succeed at this it's not just an intellectual activity it relates to your emotions your choices um your methods of learning and and so i find many times people have never really learned to learn effectively they've never learned mnemonic methods to memorize vocabulary and so so that would be kind of like the fire you up provide a roadmap. And then with the textbook beginninggreek.com which again I co-authored with my friend Ben Merkel, um it has a a website beginninggreek.com that's tons of free stuff on there. Everything from vocabulary flashcards to uh, mnemonic devices for every vocabulary word, PowerPoint you can download for free, OneNote files you can download for free. And then I, I for someone who's who's wanting to learn Greek from scratch, I would say just make a reasonable goal, say 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes, five days a week. Start with something you feel like you can really do. And then when the timer goes off, just stop and come back the next day. Like, just try to form a habit. And I think people, when they start doing that, just there'll be so much joy, honestly, and being able to read the Bible, it'll keep them going. You know, from the website, beginninggreek.com, I think I have free overview videos of all all the chapters in that textbook. Yes. So if you get that textbook and you go to thebeginninggreek.com, dot com, you really can uh, really make great progress. I think, and the answer key is in the back of that book uh, for for all the practice exercises. Now, so again, I, I really think that the challenge people are going to have is is making it a habit more than the materials and even you know, even understanding it. So it might not be a good uh, might not be a bad idea to get a friend to do that with you. So I know for example of two two moms whose kids are grown and they were homeschooling moms. Now they love to get together and read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. That's their thing. And they are I mean they're all over it. So it really does help to journey, find another person who who shares that desire
0: and go with them. So what's that called a Havutra? Um, in Hebrew, um, study buddy system, um, in in in, um, in rabbinical training, yes. to yeah. get together and study the Torah together, uh, yes. and and some people think that when Jesus says when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them, is I mean there was already a Pharisaical idea that if two are gathered together to study the Torah, that God is in the midst of them, so then in some sense Jesus is saying, I'm the Torah. So um kind of grabbing something from the Pharisees. So st- we we would just call it study buddies, but it's a it's an ancient tradition that I think um is is has been there for a long time for a reason. It it certainly helps. And even as you were telling the story, you you
1: read the Greek New Testament with your wife. So it just to have someone else along for the journey um who especially if they share your commitment to what you're doing, it it
0: it multiplies the joy. And it's good. It's very good to have that accountability. Yeah. She's my study buddy. And then, um, for two Sundays in a row, we tend to do this on Sundays. So it's like, uh, you know, I kind of, because my day job is pretty demanding. Um, and I don't just mean time. I mean, cognitively, it's very focused problem solving. Um, and so you don't just have to make time for this. You have to make space for it, right? Learning a new thing. Um, so we're kind of focused on Sundays and, a, and a couple of Sundays ago, our daughter, Was walking by as we were being study buddies and she said what's that and we said well that's a powerpoint about new testament greek and she stood there and you want to join us and yeah and so we pulled up pulled up a stool and she sat there and we did a couple of units of powerpoint so when two or three are gathered together around koine greek there he was in the midst of us and
1: and uh for for your listeners maybe who are homeschoolers it's never been easier to teach your kids Greek as you're learning it too. It's a, it's a lot of fun um, to, and there on the website. There's lots of songs to help learn Greek for nouns and verbs and so on. And children have such an incredible memory for song and for, memorization, that very quickly, they will surpass
0: us if we give them the chance to do that. Yeah, I think this is really, I think homeschoolers are probably, I don't know if you've surveyed your users, but I would suspect that homeschoolers are pretty, because they're autodidactic by nature, are a punch above their 2% of the population share when it comes to using resources like yours. Yeah, I I would guess so. Yeah. And um, it was interesting to hear, what did you say? And retired engineers, and um, I'm on the advisory board of a theological think tank. Uh, I won't mention the name just because it was something was mentioned at a meeting, and I, you know, um, I, I just want to make the observation without sharing notes. So th- they were kind of focused on pastors. We're going to do a theological exposition for pastors, and I suggested maybe it's not just pastors. Well, they finally one of the board members just started calling people. Who had participated in programs or made a donation and she reported at the board meeting accountants web developers they thought it was pastors um and maybe you expected pastors but i'm reminded of that quote i think it's from tyndale something about when the plowman when the boy and the plowman know the bible as well as the priest then you know we don't have to pray for revival it's already come and I yeah. think that's a kind of miracle, in almost in some sense, occurring in our generation, where globally, the, the 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 farm boy and the plowman and the web developer are in some ways getting ahead in knowledge to a lot of the ordained clergy. It's not an anti-clergy statement, um, but but it is a pro laity statement.
1: Yes, and that I agree with you, and I th- I mean I gives makes you know. M- makes me have goosebumps to think about it, to be honest, thinking about um, the people, you know, there's a group, um, a friend of mine here, he's a PhD student from Panama. He He's the host for the Spanish version of the Daily Dose of Greek. And through that, he's reaching lots of people. And he's, he's also zoomed in and specifically mentoring a group of men in Panama, um, who are eager to learn. He's doing this via video remotely to eager to learn uh, Greek, to be able to read the Bible, and, and this is taking place not just here, but many many other stories like that, um, and it's, it's just a great joy. Yeah, and if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, you believe it's powerful, um, as people draw close to it, it's personally transformative, uh, revives and gives them joy and purpose, guides them to great things, and you see that in that revival taking place in the communities around them. And then in the world, you know, through missions and through societal transformation. So, yeah, some I think my kids think I'm a little bit like a geeky, you know, I'm into language and stuff like this. But I'm really into changing the world. (laughs) You know, I've got I really believe the Bible is it it tells us what, what is the word of God and tells us what we need to know about ourselves and the world and God. And so. I'm on a great mission here, and, and I appreciate your encouragement and interest in it.
0: Well, talk about changing the world. I have a, I have a presentation I do, 2,000 years of economic history in five minutes or less. Um, and it's actually raw data of GDP. And I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link if you're interested. And you can, see, you can I, see nations yeah. rising and falling in economic power. Something happens around the time of the Renaissance where Greek manuscripts get into the hands of scholars, right? Erasmus, for example, who gives us the Erasmian pronunciation, um, monks like Martin Luther. And up until then, everyone had been dealing with the Vulgate, and they read in the Vulgate that, you know, they they read a word, um, you know, that uh, St. Jerome translated, God bless him, he did good work, but didn't get everything right, where where there's a reference to salvation through penance. And then someone gets a hold, go ad fontes, they get to the greek and it doesn't say penance it says repentance and all of western civilization is changed and i can look at that in the gdp per capita data that what happens when we are no longer mediating through an institution and the way that breaks down power and the way that unleashes human flourishing and i can see the countries where that's believed take off from the rest of humanity and go from life expectancies of 35 to life expectancies of 60 based on an obscure little bit of greek grammar this yes. it really does make a difference
1: oh yeah yeah amen i'm all about that i think that's fascinating and just as a side note the only two things I know something about are the Bible, and then I know a little something about economics and finance too. So I we should talk about that stuff. I enjoy that topic as well. Um, and I, I have no oversee, idea. Yeah, I oversee the uh, Faith and Work project here at, at Southern Seminary that relates to you know
0: vocation, stewardship, human flourishing, and wow. that sort of thing. I was not aware of that overlap. That's a wonderful little blessing, a little providential, economics unexpected. Fun. <laughs> Pro-
1: yeah, I love I love economics. It's, my daughter's taking uh, microeconomics right now in high school, and when she comes home, I, I I I try to engage her
0: in what she's learning. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, one of my pet interests is Jesus, Jesus as economic commentator. Um, this 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 is about your book, not my work, but. Um, what I've done is taken the archaeological, what we know from sort of the um, economic archaeology of Galilee, Nazareth, Sepphoris, Tiberius, Bethsaida, Bethlehem, uh, Bethany, and said, okay, let's look at Jesus's economic statements, putting them in, in the particular context of the economic environment he was in when he said these things. And powerful patterns emerge about Jesus speaking very differently about wealth based on where he was locationally. Um, geographical yeah. context seems to really matter. That Jesus isn't going out there giving fortune cookie advice that would apply to everybody. He's taking his stock sermons and varying them a little bit, depending on the economic context. So um, That's fascinating. Yeah, I think you'd probably, given what yeah, you just yeah. told that,
1: Is that something you've published, or is that just speak, com, speaking I'd
0: love it was speaking it. for a few years, and then someone talked me into writing a book about it, and I've and I've written the book. I'm a little yeah. afraid to, to tell us uh, the name of it. Uh, um, I'll send you. I'll send it to you. It's the Maker okay. versus the Takers. Oh, the Maker Correct. versus the Takers. What Jesus really said about social justice and economics. I'd love to see it. I, I'm afraid to send it to you because my Greek was old. When I did it, I hadn't started this again, so I was, okay. I was cheating. I was depending on Bible works and, and Lagos because I wasn't in the text. So um, There's no shame, brother. I'm a little That's frightened of – I might be over-reading some of the repetition of certain Greek words, which is one of the things that you point out. You, you're, you're good on pet peeves here um, in this book because there's – people have a little Greek. And then they like beat the living daylights out of it and push the text or the grammar into theological territory well, you know, further than it belongs. Like taking some particular shade of meaning of a word, you know, like there's a, there's a range of meanings, grabbing on one of those ranges and then making a huge theological point about it. I I assume you've seen a lot of that. You referenced that in the book.
1: Yeah. I try to, um, I mean, I don't want to make students afraid to use their Greek, but I want them to be careful. I don't want them to be haphazard with it. And I also, um, I, I'm, you know, I tell, sometimes I tell students that, that, and I borrowed this from someone else, I don't know who I heard it from, that Greek should be like underwear, right? It should provide support, but it should not be visible. It's kind of obscene to have your underwear visible in public. And in the same way, when you have... When you're teaching and preaching, very rarely do you really need to come out and say the Greek here, or especially reference grammatical terms. What you're doing, though, as you're preaching and teaching or leading a Sunday school or whatever, that study is undergirding. So that when you're emphasizing something, like you're making it a main point, you're raising your voice, you're rephrasing it several times. You're doing that because you know the the foundation underneath you is that's what the text is really saying. So that feels really good because you're not making that up. It's not like, well, I think this might be a good point, so I'll just say it really loud. And you're you're saying it loud because the text is structurally and grammatically emphasizing that. And that feels like that feels like you're standing on really solid ground when you do that. Hmm. So yeah, I try honestly. You know, sometimes I'll be a sermon or something and someone will do some weird stuff with Greek and maybe they'll ask me afterwards. They'll say, what'd you think about my Greek? And usually I'll just try to, I'll say, I mean, I'll very genuinely say your sermon helped me to see and love the Lord Jesus more. And I, you know, I try not to make it an issue of like, well, the Greek teacher's here. So I'm getting graded. That's the last thing I want people to experience. But in the classroom, I do challenge students to be very careful and to um, to not overstate um, and and to to not uh, and as much as possible to to lead their congregations or the people to whom they're ministering to see what wonderful English translations we have. So the people don't leave the leave the sermon thinking, oh, I, there's translations full of mistakes because Pastor Re- Corrects them every
0: week. <laughs> like we we don't want it, We don't want to do that. That's an right? interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. But if the pastor is trying to play one-upsmanship with the translation, they're undermining confidence in translations.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah, and that's why I I try to coach my students. I say, you know, let's let's say for example. Um, your pew Bible is the NIV 1984 For my church for many years. That was a pew Bible. Hmm. And someone's preaching from Philemon six, the book of Philemon. And it says, I pray you may be active in sharing your faith so that you have a knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. Any evangelical who hears the word sharing phrase, sharing your faith, thinks evangelism, right? And in fact, I've seen that verse used by a prominent ministry, prominent pastor to, for an evangelism plan. Hmm, but wow. the word there is koinonia. It, it re- and the context of the book, the word itself, it has nothing to do with evangelism. It has to do with sharing faith through the community, Philemon yes. and Onesimus in the body of Christ, a partnership, a par- right? Yeah, partnership, partnership. Right. Yeah. And this is why the NIV 2011 Change that certainly they they changed it to partnership or some participation in the faith something like that because that phrase is misunderstood. But if you're teaching on that, you don't say ah oh, this is wrong. You know the the way to do that I think is to come in and say you know when we first hear this we may think of sharing our faith through evangelism, but there's different ways we share our faith. And this book is speaking about sharing your faith within the Christian community through sacrifice, through love, through acceptance, through forgiveness, and then you say hey. Here's another English translation that renders it this way, and that makes that more clear. So you teach people to use ah, mul-
0: multiple— I see. So it's not, I'm the expert and I'm correcting the translation. It's, here's another translation that probably is getting getting at this point a little more. So it's taking the pastor's ego out of it yeah, um, and redirecting them towards resources. I, I think so. Yeah, and, you I know, think and especially, we live in an age of incredible skepticism of all authority and expertise— we have conspiracy theories running wild, maybe more so in the church than in the culture in general, uh, but potentially. And I think the last thing we need to do is give people the impression that all the translation committees are out there trying to trick them, you know into something rather than that they're faithful, but that no English translation will capture every gradation of possible meaning. It's not They aren't bad translations. it's just they're translations. Translations, and and recognizing, I think most people are not very self-reflective
1: on language, that even the English language is constantly changing, Hmm. and words are picking up different nuances. Even over decades, we can see this in our own lifetime, and so there's always a need to, there will always be a need to
0: update translations and change them. One of the things that I've seen sort of in my world, so I'm in the world of Christianity and finance. Um, and this is sort of a linguistic pet peeve. Now, this one will be Hebrew, not Greek, um, is that one particular translational decision into English, which is maybe slightly dynamic, not literal. I've seen people build just complete castles on what I know, go back and look at the original text, Was is not literal. So in Proverbs 10... There are. There's this statement about ill-gotten gains leading to destruction. Ill-gotten gains. Okay, that's a King James version. So I have people in my world who who say, "Well, if you own the S and P five hundred, in there is Apple, and and people se- and they sell phones." And one of the things people do on those phones is they download, download pornography. Now, they can also download daily dose of Greek, but they can download pornography. So that gain was ill-gotten. And so the ill-gottenness of it metaphysically attaches to that bit of gain, that profit. And it travels through Apple's dividends and through my S&P 500 ETF and down into, so I've gotten ill-gotten gains. And I've been in debates with people where they say, see, it matters how it was gotten. doesn't matter how you got it. It matters how it was gotten. And it's like, okay, just understand the Hebrew doesn't say ill-gotten gains. It, it literally treasures of wickedness. Maybe it means that. Maybe it doesn't. But you've built so much yeah. on a on a word. The translation committee was not thinking. Probably here's what somebody's going to do with that. They were just trying to make something that made sense. And I'm sure you see that. It, you know, in people looking at English translations of the Greek New Testament as well.
1: Yes, it's true. People will. Um, yeah, they'll be doing something with an English text, and then they'll say, "Look here, the Merriam-Webster." of this word, you know, and so they're building off uh, an English definition of an English word that is is debatable, whether it's a more literal or dynamically equivalent translation. So, so yes. And that's, that's why um, I do find that curious Christians with enough time, they see, wait, I want to be thinking about the actual Greek and Hebrew words that are here. And if I can, I'd like to be reading them. And so, yeah, that's that's the logical consequence of that.
0: Hmm. Uh, would you say after maybe a year of doing something like you've talked about, ten or fifteen minutes a day, that after a year, maybe two at the outset, you're going to start thinking in Greek?
1: Um, I don't know if people will be thinking in Greek. depends on how they're learning it, hmm. um, and it it
0: depends on how they're studying it, and um, it. Well, well, let me say it this way not thinking in Greek like dreaming in Greek, but they're reading a text and they're not translating. They are going right to meaning.
1: Certainly, very doable. Yeah. 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 Where you're, where you're so in, have so ingested the sense of the words and the grammar that you're, you're not, you're not woodenly translating it into English. You're just reading it and understanding it. Absolutely. Hmm. Now, um, there, you may know there's different uh, schools of competing philosophies. We you know, we could compare this to what we compare this to the, uh, you know, in, in economics, you have the Keynesians and you have the, uh, you know, not the anti-Keynesians or the supply but, siders,
0: it, the Austrians, yes, the Chicago yeah. school, or yeah, right.
1: Yes. This sort of thing, Hayek versus Keynes. And, and so, but in, in, in studying Greek, you have a strong young movement that's really advocating learning Greek as a living language. And so they, they're big on like speaking it and getting camps where you learn. And, and if you learn it that way, it is true that it is wired in your brain to just like if you learn French or Spanish to speak, it's, it's a little bit different wiring in your brain than learning it to read. Mm. Um, But very few people have the community where they can, practice Greek to to that level as a living language. Although there are some resources like if you, if you look at the beginninggreek.com, one of the links on there is to Biblingo.
0: Yes. And
1: Biblingo is a web-based conversational Greek and Hebrew platform. So for people who are, you know, for, so their vocabulary cards, for example, for the verb kradzo, they have some guy and dressed in a first century uh, a tire who's in, you know, looks like he's in Israel and he's like crying out. out. Yeah, right. He's, cry- ah, he's crying out. Crowds means cry out. Right. And so they're trying to work. It's a good method to try to wire the brain to to see these as actual. These words are, you know, they don't have to come through English, but we understand Kradzo, you know, what it is without translating it.
0: So um, is that is that what's called reconstructed Greek pronunciation as opposed to Erasmian?
1: Yeah, there's. Yes. Among these people, there's there's a variety of different ways. There are people who speak actually people who teach Greek conversationally. There are many different varieties. Some of them use a modified Erasmian. Uh, some of them use what they call reconstructed Koine. So through studying textual variants, try to best understand how Koine was spoken. Some prefer modern Greek. So like anything, when you get into it, there's all these minor uh, variations, and some people feel very strongly about them. I, I don't feel so strongly about them. The main reason that I use Erasmian is it's the dominant uh, it's the dominant pronunciation of the people I'm trying to help. You know, yes. When I started out trying to help pastors and seminary students, that that by far is the most, is the dominant pronunciation method in Bible colleges and seminaries for decades. And so if someone tried to come back to Greek and I said, yeah, I'm going to help you, but you first you have to learn a whole new pron- pronunciation system they're probably going to give up right then.
0: Well, and, um, and aren't
1: most people trying
0: to learn it, to read it, not to speak it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I mean, there are obscure people who speak <laughs> reconstructed Koine with their children. and that, But, you know, these are very small slice of people. Yeah. Most of us want to be able to read the Bible. And, and, and realistically, um, you know, some the vocabulary, there's some, so many vocabulary words that occur with, with such rarity, you're not going to be able to use conversationally. It's going to be hard. It's not like you're speaking
0: French. Where's the train? How do I get to the bathroom? That kind right. of stuff. I mean, so. yeah, there's only so much you can I mean, there's bread and there's whatever, but there, there is not airplane and there isn't car. And, um, so you yeah, can't really yeah. be a, a you can't be a coin, a Greek speaking household it was a little bit like Hebrew. I mean, they have to import so many. I mean, they started with biblical Hebrew, but they have to import telephone and banana and a whole bunch of other things. So it's going to be, if you're doing that, then what you're going to end up with is another living language for the small number of people who do it. By the way, this sounds like a really wonderful thing for a homeschooling family to do. Bless them, but probably not for the rest of us. Pro- probably not
1: most of your listeners, though, you know, you can people can explore. And, and like on the beginning Greek, dot com website that there's a link to biblingo i think they'll give you a free week playing around with it and they do have a set of they do have uh their vocabulary flashcards you can use a set that's keyed to the order of the textbook so if you someone wants mm. to play around with those living uh video flashcards um
0: you know try, take a week and try it out uh you um you have some really great stuff in the book um Uh, Again, this is in the pet peeve territory, but we'll move on to the positive in a moment. Uh, Like over-reading, you mentioned lexical ranges, like agape means self-giving divine love, right? Um, And it's like, well, it can, and it could just mean love, right? It can mean sex. Um, So there's a lot of that that goes on, I think. From the, from from pretty good pulpits. In other words, it's not. It's some of the best of our of of the clergy world that is doing that because at least they're bothering to learn some Greek. Yeah. Um, but. They could probably do a little better by not saying, "Well, dunamis means dynamite," and uh, when it doesn't, yeah. I mean that's that's two thousand years, or I don't know, d- yeah. dynamite uh, maybe eighteen hundred years of philological transmission. So no, yeah. dunamis doesn't mean dynamite, and it d- and dynamite doesn't really give us the image probably of what dunamis means. But it's a cognate, and cognate doesn't mean um, synonym; doesn't mean the same yeah. meaning.
1: Yes, and and another one you'll see sometimes. And I, again if someone says my, well what do I do if I go home and my pastor does this don't embarrass I tell no, my no. Students, don't embarrass him don't and, you know pray for him and realize hey I'm grateful that when I went to seminary I got to learn um you know I got to learn some things apparently that were not taught clearly from when my pastor was there but one is illegitimate totality transfer sometimes people will do this they'll you know say, the Greek word here is cosmos and then they'll read off like 12 things that you know the world the universe orderly and, orderly, and beautiful it, right, right it gives the sense of erudition because you're reading you know all these definitions but we realize it's just the range of what the word could mean but the real hard work of reading a text carefully is knowing which of those is intended it doesn't mean all of them at once yes. just like if I say cell phone someone doesn't sit there and scratch their head and be like Cell. That's like a blob of protoplasm, and that's a place where a guy's kept in jail, and that's a square in my spreadsheet, and that's a mobile phone. Wow, your phone is all these things. You're like, no, no, no. It's just, it just means mobile phone in this context. It does cell phone and mobile phones, same thing. So yeah, that, that's, that's
0: a common fallacy you'll hear as well. So let's talk about the good stuff. Tell me something that you've seen from students in your own life where reading the original Koine unlocked something for you, either yeah. cognitively or emotionally or devotionally, where, where you got a treasure from, or you know people who've gotten treasures from having some Greek
1: yeah well I mean I every time every time I pick up the Greek New Testament that's my experience to be honest and I see that in my students too I mean there's um, there's delight and now at one level we're just reading the Bible slowly right you're reading it carefully and if you read that the Bible slowly in English or in some other language you hear and see things that you might not see otherwise but I mean tomorrow we're going to start going through first John. In my Greek syntax class, we're beginning this semester, and uh, in verse four, he. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. Verse five. Let me grab my Greek New Testament here. Verse five, First John one five. Uh, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And in Greek, it's actually a double negation, right? It's uh, n- there's none, none darkness, not in Him. <laughs> no, no no darkness not in him right and uh it's difficult to convey in english the strength of the negative it's it, and and so i just tell them
0: you know when you teach Scotia and alto uk estin udemia yeah exactly right? so, we've, so got, they, we've got we've got we've got an uk yes. and we've got an ude uh, udemia uh-huh. udemia sorry <laughs> yeah so you have, you
1: have a not there not as none yes <laughs> Literally, not as, so that's why English translations are trying to convey that none at all, certainly not something. And so I say, you know, when you see this, it, it's just saying God is, clearly, if you read this, the light is a, God's holiness. The darkness is, is about sin and, and evil. God is holy. He is completely pure. There's not even the tiniest little nano speck of evil or darkness in him at all, right? He is, and so I say, when you when you experience this, you don't go into teaching the Sunday school, the women's conference, the pulpit, whatever. You don't go in, ah, double negation in Greek, Don't do that. Just feel the strength of the negation. Get excited about it and then illustrate. Use it through your tone of voice, through your, you know, really bring it out. Let people see, look at this. You know, it's 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 pretty strong in the English already, but let the strength of
0: the text come out through your explanation. And if something occurs to me that your point about slowing down. So my mind immediately goes to John one five, right? He he, fi- he fines, and he scotia alto uk ketelaban. So mm. he's the light that shines in the darkness. The scotia same word. And the scotia mm. does not comprehend, can no. can't envelop him, and there's none in him. Mm. Right? Mm. So yeah. th- this is a yeah. really important point you're making. Let's say you get no special insights from Greek at all. You're mm. going to get a load of special insights just by not reading overly familiar familiar English.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When I, I teach theological French here at the seminary too, it's I like languages. And so when we start off reading text, we start reading the New Testament. And it is just reading the Bible, even though it's a French translation— just reading the Bible in an unfamiliar language uh, it just it slows you down you hear I think sometimes I read I think to myself is that is that what it says in Greek or or England? Hold on, you
0: know let me look at that again. well, I do a little guest preaching, and one of the things that i when I talk to people especially about the stories of jesus because i'm in i'm in a high church tradition, so we have a lectionary, and what I tell people is the biggest problem you have in translate in, in understanding this is how many times you've heard it mm. so and all the sermons you've heard and so what happens over time is you hear it and what you're really hearing are all the sermons you've heard about it it's really hard to actually go back and read the text
1: yeah yeah that reminds me of a time we had a, a witnessing trip here at, in Louisville and Uh, To some apartments where some um, had a lot of immigrants there. And my wife and I, we ended up uh, getting connected with these Sudanese immigrants. And we uh, ordered the Jesus video in Sudanese Arabic. And we went down to see them. um, And uh, they they had just gotten providentially just gotten a DVD player. This was a number of years ago when people still watch DVDs. And we were invited in. And they had all these friends that they were all watching this and, and they were just on the edge of their seats. And when Jesus would, he would teach, you know, we could kind of tell where it was from the, they would, they would laugh, you know, when he made this point, or they jab each other, oh, look at the, you know, it's because it was, it, the stories were completely unfamiliar to them and they could, they could see the, the humor and the wit and
0: just it was it was really a neat experience. So reading in Koine Greek is a way to read the passage again for the first time. Yes, without yeah, all the accretions. Yeah, to to or hear even another. the boredom of the repetition.
1: Yeah, and, and I think people sometimes are surprised when they read the Bible in the original language because they're so usually we we gravitate to one translation or another. And they're just, "Oh, wait, I always read, read it this way, wait the, let me and and they again, they for example, the Philemon Six passage, hmm. anyone who read that in the Greek would never come out with that as an evangelism
0: verse and would probably be shocked um, that they had been reading it that way hmm. I, I'm thinking for my own part, in some of the research I did recently, I was looking at the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Right, and there was I saw something in one of the church fathers that got me thinking in a new direction. Obscure um, church father, not like Augustine or someone like that. Um, and he he made a little suggestion. I was reading through the text, and I noticed that Lazarus was put at the pulos, right, mm-hmm. the porch. Mm-hmm. But porch porch sometimes means porch, but often it means portico. Like it's the same word used for Solomon. For you know, for Solomon's porch, and then later in Acts, it's used for one of the pagan. So that got me. Okay, could it? Could this be a Templar reference rather than a just mansion reference? So I'm looking at Porphyry, and that's the these are the high priest garments and fine linen. Again, same as in the Septuagint. But of course, just because something's used, if you say the same Greek word is used, that's not settled. But mm-hmm. it's something that says, hmm, look more closely.
1: Yeah. And then I
0: looked really closely, and then I saw five brothers, and it's like, wait, something's going on here. Oh, wait, in Josephus, Caiaphas, the high priest, has five brothers. Wait a minute. Have we been misreading this? Is Jesus doing the pointy end of the stick towards the—now, you don't necessarily have to— i i'm con- I conclude yep. that he has that that's what 's going on you don 't have to believe that, but the Greek can get us looking at dimensions that we never would have imagined in yeah. the english
1: yeah that's cool yeah it to slow down to hear echoes to see a word that you maybe always knew is translated one way in English to think, oh wait um huh that that's not the word I might have thought would be there in the Greek. And this word has this other range of meaning. So that's that's cool that that's led you on that journey
0: into careful study of that. That's neat. There, you have a lot of great material. So I don't want to um, emphasize, I've emphasized how much this is a kind of a beginner book. Mm-hmm. And it is. You can come with no Greek at all and you're going to get the alphabet. But you don't shy away from, at certain points, pulling in state-of-the-art um, linguistic analysis and essentially updating if you went to seminary 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and that's true for a lot of people, loads have been learned about discourse functions and textual chunking, and you know, you know the idea of deponent verbs probably isn't really right. There's another way of thinking of it linguistically. So you've got a lot of cutting-edge stuff going on in, well, in, a, in an introductory yeah. text, and I've I found that helpful.
1: Good. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. We tried, my co-author and I, Ben Merkel and Ben's, I couldn't have done this book without Ben. I mean, we, he is, he's the foundation of the book, right? He, 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 he's the one who wrote me in and said, let's, let's do this together. Um, so, but yes, we, our goal was to be accurate. We didn't want to be correcting beginning students errors. Like Now you have to be somewhat simple in a beginning textbook, but but i find students are really intrigued by things that um that help them see the text better so for example the as you've alluded to a couple of times the use of the historical or narrative present to help chunk up or paragraph the text i mean that's an it's something that and has uh, only come to the forefront maybe more in in more recent scholarship. It's usually not dealt with in a beginning Greek text, but it's so prevalent in the historical narratives of the New Testament. It's not hard to understand. Uh, And I, I find students really enjoy that. So yes, we did try to speak really clearly about the nuances of the perfect, the nuances of the middle voice um, the discourse function of the tenses a proper understanding of verbal aspect in relation to time we we wanted to but we wanted to write it in such a way that it wasn't trendy you know we, we didn't want this book to to seem trendy and dated 20 30 years from now right. but to be standing on a, a firm foundation of
0: Prior scholarship. Well, it seems to me it makes sense. Instead of saying, "Okay, this is a this is a present tense, but it's a past situation," so just translate it as past. Nothing to see here. And then later in intermediate Greek, okay, well, it really does mean something. So unlearn what you learned in basic, and right from the very beginning, they can say, "Okay, I'll probably translate it as a, from translating as a past." But something's going on here. It's not just there's two different ways to do past. There Something is being revealed to me about a transition, about the structure of the passage, so that when you've got some, a past setting and you have a present tense verb, the text is like doing a little time travel. You're going through the time tunnel. The text is saying, okay, stop for a moment. We're going to zoom in and we're, I'm going to take you there. And that is a transition that ought to cause us to, oh, pay attention, the text, there's a new chunk of text coming. Yes, and,
1: and we need to be sympathetic that this was a way ancient authors, without paragraphing, without punctuation, yes. without spacing and formatting, could communicate those structural features that we... Have such a luxury? So many different ways we can do that: indenting, paragraphing, punctuation. So it allowed them to do the same thing.
0: They couldn't afford indentation. Parchment was expensive, right? Yeah, so, they it, use, so they used so they used tenses to do the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, you don't. Yeah, we certainly
1: don't have any for the first few centuries there. It's just it's just a sea. the earliest papyri we have or that sea of wo- Sea of words. We can be grateful. It's a lot easier to read. It, Read Greek now that the words are broken. Oh, up. looking
0: at those manuscripts in all caps, right? And people don't learn all caps in archae span kind of logos. Okay, wait, what? Um, if it's yeah, not it's a familiar a very
1: specialized, you know, people who are into paleography and they they devote their life to that, they learn. I mean, we, you, I, we could we could learn to read that, but it is a it's something you have to to learn to read. It's a hmm. Specialized field,
0: yes, and yeah, we. For, I think for most laymen, laywomen. You know, learning to read the, the normal Greek texts with that, that are not capital and, and have yeah, spaces I, between the yeah. words and punctuation—that's that. a reasonable, expo- you know,
1: reasonable goal, isn't it? I'm good with that. Although there is a movement now of people who really want to read the text uh, as formatted as the oldest. You know, there, I think there's a you know a version of um, uh, altered. Uh, sort of facsimile of Codex Vaticanus or Sinaiticus. It's very popular now that people are ordering. They want to read the text with all caps and no spaces to have that experience of early. I'm not there, but, but I, I'm okay with it already broken up. But some people, you know, hey, you can do that today. Or you can just go to the website, CodexSinaiticus.org. And if you haven't gone there, it's a lot of fun. You can type in any text, you know, it'll take you there. And then it is nice, it pulls up on the right, it'll pull up the Greek text with the words broken apart, like mm. we're more accustomed to seeing. Mm. And it even will pull up the Bible and multiple modern translations alongside too. So if someone wants to play around with that, it's never been easier.
0: What is that, dot
1: Codessinaticus.org, Sin- I believe it's or. Dot Yeah, it probably r- would be an org. I'm, I, yeah, so it's no, it's
0: probably not a business, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, in conjunction with St. Catherine's Monastery and the British british museum but they have high quality digital photographs of this very important early codex which your your listeners may not know it's a book basically it's the old and new testament in greek some apocryphal books in there as well and uh you can it's probably from the late 300s so it's just amazing to be able to uh, look at that on your screen just, just read this the
0: same text that um, Christians read 1600 years ago. I I could see that having a certain spiritual power. Now yeah. there's also a temptation because there's a show-offedness about it, right? But I could see that having a spiritual power to be reminded that this really is a very very ancient text. Um, totally. and yeah, and so to, to sort of take on the trappings of that, Like watching a period piece movie and having people wearing the right clothes for the period rather than like Shakespeare said in the 40s with gangsters or something like that, you know, to have people dressed the right way like Romans and Julius Caesar, that there's a kind of a mood that probably – is I don't know if it's worth the effort or not. I I probably can't find time for it. But bless them if they're willing to do it rather than watching binge watching something on Netflix. Exactly. If you're gonna if you're if someone's spending ten hours a
1: week on their phone and they would rather devote themselves to learning to read uncial or majuscule early New Testament. Manuscripts. I think that's a great way to use their time. This is uh, Hendrickson just published this. It's the new test earliest, some of the earliest and most important new Testament papyri wow. and high quality photographs. I'll wow. show you P45, uh, P46 and P47. They're in the Chester Beatty um, collection in Ireland. But I, I um, you know, this is not my specialty reading, reading these, you know, they're all caps and those spaces it's, It probably doesn't show up very well on Zoom but i did sit down the other day in my my recliner over here and uh pulled up a text from revelation uh, uh in the in the book and then uh you know i i have to look at the actual text cuz i'm not used to breaking up the words in this way and also it was, it was fascinating to see i don't know if you know some of the earliest manuscripts they they use the nomina sacra abbreviation yes. where like theta, yeah. theta rather than theos yes right? yes about so the theta sigma and a line over it and and so it was. It was interesting to to read a text that had that, and then to uh, see some of the um, the ways the numbers were rendered as well was interesting. Um, so I, you know, it's not something I do regularly, but I
0: I kind of enjoyed it. It was it was sort of fun. Well, I could also see a kind of an apologetics element to this because if people who don't know anything about the Bible think that the Bible was translated over and over and over and over and over again, and we have no idea what the early texts were. Uh, And to be able to say, here's a photograph of a text from 50 years of Jesus's life on earth. You know, this is a first century fragment. This is how far back the Bible actually goes. I think that's a little bit not— it's a shock to people and to actually see it. um, Because, I I mean— in my lifetime, it, there are there times when scholars, many believe that the Gospels were written 200 years after the time of Jesus. There are people seriously saying that, or 100 or 150 years, and it's like, no, here's here's a fragment that is in the same century as Jesus. We didn't know about it before, but now we've gotten them. That, that has a certain power, I think.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, as as you know, there's no, no yes. other... ancient document in the world that has the kind of attestation that the new Testament does, you know, over 5,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts um, and dating all the way, all all the way back to at least to the early second century. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it is, it is amazing. And um, we pray, you know, we thank God for his wisdom and, and, providence and preserving those manuscripts and allowing them,
0: allowing them now to be so widely available. So takeaways for me would be, this is a great place to start. Um, And also signing up for daily dose of Greek. Um, And uh, you probably, you won't be able to use daily dose of Greek the first day um, because you have to be able to read the alphabet and you have to know some things. But if you worked your way through this and watched the videos now working the actually working the problems you're going to be, and you go through this book and work the problems and look at the answer key in the back you're going to you're going to really be ready to start yeah. reading the Greek New Testament. Yeah,
1: that's right. After after working through that beginning, I mean that's the textbook I use here on campus, hmm. after we work through one semester, by the end we're reading 1 John with hmm. very little help. Hmm. And then the next semester the first thing we start doing is we read all of 1 John, and then we start reading some portions of Mark and Matthew and Romans and James, and so, yeah.
0: Just keep at it.
1: Yeah, it's a a lifetime journey. It's a lifetime journey,
0: and it's a a joyful lifetime journey. People in ancient um, Mediterranean culture, even people who were not particularly smart, people with IQs of 80 learned Koine Greek, Absolutely, (laughs) they just spent time with Koine Greek. We're we're wired by God, the Logos, the Word. May have been overreading the meeting here. We're we're wired for grammar and language. That's part, I think, of what it is to be a mago dei. So it's just time spent. It you don't have to be a genius.
1: Absolutely, and I've had students from very poor educational backgrounds with a lot of intellectual challenges who have learned Greek, I've had students who who are blind, hmm. who've had to learn Greek orally and with Braille. Sometimes if I have students complain, I'm like, do you realize <laughs> you you can see? <laughs> I mean, I, I have students I've had to give all the quizzes orally in the past because they're learning, having to learn Greek, and and they do learn it by Braille too, but through Braille and, and orally. So when we step back and we hear that, we're like, maybe, maybe it's not as hard as I thought.
0: Homer did it. Yeah, that's true. He was blind and learned Greek. <laughs> that's that's and he true. learned Doric Greek, which I think yeah. is probably a little harder. Um, yeah, <laughs> point a. Point. <laughs> All right. So is there anything you want to leave us with? I, I covered, I mean, there's so many things we cover. I covered what i kind of felt like were the essentials, but I don't get to everything that you think might be worth saying or talking about. So is there anything else you want yeah, to say? I think you really covered it. And I would
1: just say, if someone's kind of toying around with the idea go to beginninggreek.com and just you don't have to buy the book yet you know i eventually you probably will want to but just watch the first one or two overview videos and i bet you'll be like hey i can do this yeah i can do this and then you'll see there are many other free resources available there and then daily dose you can see you can sign up through that you can see there's an app a free app on the ios or the android there's we're trying to reach people wherever they are. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. The videos go out through all these different platforms. Most people probably still get it through the email list. You sign up for the email list and it shows up in your inbox every day. I do.
0: It's also on Facebook.
1: Yeah. You, it's you on can Facebook, sign up on
0: Facebook. Yeah. Facebook,
1: Twitter. The we, we have a feed there. It's at Daily Greek, at Daily Greek. Um, we don't do TikToks yet. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know.
0: So there I'm might wait- be some dance moves. You might do yeah. some, you know,
1: <laughs> alpha. Yeah, uh, yeah. if I get some high school students who are sometimes there's some classical Christian high school students who are really into Greek. If I get some that want to do our vocabulary on TikTok, I'm happy to work with them to make that happen. But
0: um yeah, we're not there yet. So that 's the so, glossalia of the 21st century, different platforms right yeah. the way to reach people of all nations and tribes we're trying we 're trying to do that and, wonder- and thankfully um, i 've
1: got an assistant who helped I, I really have very little knowledge of that sort of stuff, but I have an assistant who's Jonathan Algren is his name He does a great job getting it all out there and
0: so I can focus on what i what i know so the starting place would be www.beginninggreek.com com or org I forget dot com yeah,
1: just beginninggreek.com and there's a companion site for the intermediate volume deepergreek.com. so beginninggreek.com, deepergreek.com for someone if they've worked through the textbook already and then and then the website dailydossa dot com
0: well, I've got deeper Greek on my shelf, and you have a relatively recent um edition of that right yeah
1: yeah Slush. we we, have, we it's been about been out about five years, so we did a just a brief update revision. There's been a few things, for example, the Tyndale House, we don't have time to really talk about it, but the Tyndale House Greek New Testament is, uh, was, had not come out yet when the first edition. So a few little updates like that, that I think, make it a better
0: volume. Well, thank you uh, for being with us. Thank you much more for the work you're doing. And uh, may, it, may there be millions and millions and tens of millions of, of plowmen, Uh, who know God's Word better than scholars and priests of the past have. And if that's the case, the revival has already come. Amen. Thank you for having me, Jerry. My pleasure.